Welcome to SAS Talk with Kim, your sustainability action series podcast highlighting how local governments are leading the way toward a more sustainable future. I'm your host, Kim Lundgren. I've spent the last 16 years working for and with local governments to help them create resilient, inclusive, thriving communities. I started this podcast series to connect you with the key people on the ground putting sustainability into action in their communities. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to SAS Talk with Kim. I am your host, Kim Lundgren, and I'm very excited to be here today with Jennifer Godzeno, the Deputy Director of the Participatory Budgeting Project. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And I'm also excited to announce, as you all can see, this is our first video podcast, so you get to actually see our fun and exciting faces as we talk through this really exciting topic. So thanks for joining us for the inaugural video one. (laughs) So Jennifer, participatory budgeting is really becoming quite the buzz, right? People are around the local government space are very interested in this. Everyone's talking about wanting to do it. Can we just start with some of the basics first to get us started on what is participatory budgeting? Yeah, so participatory budgeting in short is a democratic process in which community members directly decide on how to spend part of a public budget. Um, And, you know, really the result of that is that when you give people real power over real money uh, to be able to shape their communities and invest in projects that make their communities uh, healthier, more connected, more sustainable, that that then drives this virtuous cycle in which uh, community members become more engaged in, in the fabric of their community through participatory budgeting and through lots of other means. It's really interesting, right? Because you think about it, working in and in, in for local governments for so long, people in the general, just the general public really have no idea how much it costs to maintain your roads, right. to fill those potholes. Like we really have no sense of the cost of this. So this really seems to fit so well in with the transparency goals that local governments are aiming for. Right, definitely. I mean, I, I think that one of the one of the things that's most edifying about participatory budgeting is that unlike a lot of um, existing community processes where maybe you have one hearing and, and you're asking the public to weigh in on admittedly very complex things, should we approve this or not, um, they're often not getting that information about, you know, how much does this really cost? Why does it cost this much? Um, sometimes, you, you know, you'll have elected officials or city staff who will at least say like, oh, this project is gonna be X number of million dollars, but there's none of that context. What I really like about participatory budgeting is that there's this opportunity for members of the general public to dive really deep into this process of understanding what does it take to build something? And then that allows the community to then be able to analyze these trade-offs between um, you know, one project or another. They really get to understand that you know, we, we have limited resources, we can't fund everything, but once they get into it, they, they not only build knowledge, but sometimes they're also able to really build some more empathy for how hard it is to be working in government and making these tough decisions. That's great. I mean, I just think about in government, it's very common to be talking about projects in the millions of dollars. Into right. an individual citizen that's like, are you crazy? Million dollars for this? Right. It's probably overwhelming for them. So it seems like this process really creates that educational opportunity in that context, as you said. Mm -hmm. So take us back a bit and, you know, how did this get started? What are the roots of participatory budgeting? 
So um, participatory budgeting um, is relatively new to North America, but started in Porto Alegre, Brazil in 1989. Um, so we've been able to borrow this um, international best practice that is now seen in over 3,000 communities across the globe. Um, so, you know, I'm, again, even though it's sort of a newer practice here uh, in the United States, it's not an experiment. It's a really, it's a proven method to be able to um, improve governance as well as improve community engagement. Fantastic. So you've already talked a lot about some of the benefits. Are there certain things that you find communities are coming to you for as like the main reason they want to get started on this? Mm. So, I mean, there can be varying motivations for doing participatory budgeting. Um, one thing I really want to emphasize is that participatory budgeting is a method of community engagement. We as, you know, planners and folks who are in the public sector, we have to do community engagement, right? So it's a matter of how are you going to do it well? Um, and we know that a lot of times there are existing mandates uh, to um, engage in a participatory element, say, um, uh, you know, let's say you're, you, you have to have a hearing for, you know, a, a public project or something. Participatory budgeting is a way to do that um, in a way that's more engaging, um, more informative. Um, and so we find that there are, there are many communities that are just trying to um, overlay participatory budgeting on existing mandates rather than just kind of deciding, oh, this seems like a nice idea. Really, it, it's about how can participatory budgeting meet the community demand or issue that you already have on the table. And so we'll see um, on the grassroots side, we'll see that um, community groups have sort of a, a pre-existing interest in being able to um, engage more in their, in their budgets. Um, we've seen on uh, one, of the, one of the very exciting examples that we have right now is that in the state of California in their transportation budgets, um, they are required to have some sort of community participation element. And in this past year, they've actually specifically um, inserted participatory budgeting as one of the mechanisms by which you can meet that community participation requirement when you're doing your long range transportation planning. So again, it's, it's not a standalone thing. It's a better solution for admittedly um, processes that often are, are very unfulfilling and uh, frustrating on both sides for the public as well as um, for those who are working in the public sector. Those are great points. I love framing it as kind of a, another tool in the public engagement toolbox. And really, I think when you start thinking about this process, it helps maybe even enhance some of those other tools right. um, because you're able to incorporate it in multiple ways. Definitely. So yeah. getting down to the this actual process, can you kind of walk us through what does it look like from start to finish for a community to go through a process like this? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think what might help is just to first kind of frame it um, sort of in contrast to a lot of our typical processes. Um, you know, those of us who are trained as urban planners may be familiar with uh, Sherry Arnstein's really, uh, you know, seminal article on uh, the ladder of citizen participation. And um, that, again, a lot of the practices that we tend to engage in um, as planners might be uh, characterized as tokenism, right? You have, mm -hmm. you're required by law to have the one hearing. It's kind of painful for everyone all around because, you know, you go in as the, uh, um, as the public official or uh, city staffer and you just kind of get yelled at. Um, <laughs> it's kind of painful for the public too because they show up, they don't know 
what to expect. They sit through your very long presentation and then they get up and they comment on it. And, you know, they're doing their best to be able to comment. You're doing your best to be able to, to convey the information in a way that is relatable, but you have three hours right? or however long the hearing is. And it's just really impossible to have um, good dialogue in that space. And then what can be particularly frustrating for the public at the end of the day is that they don't know if, you know, all of that time that they spent um, in that hearing expressing their opinion, if it's even going to make a difference because there's no promise at the beginning that yes, we're going to account for this. It's, you know, we're required to have this hearing. So, you know, show up, speak your mind, it'll go into the transcript. And, and that's as much of a promise as you get. And, and that's, um, and that's part of why we tend to get participation where the only people who show up are the angriest people or the people who are against something. Um, you know, I, I can speak to, you know, I'm very engaged in my community here. I'm trained as an urban planner. And even then, you know, I have a family, uh, I, you know, like showing up at these hearings and not knowing whether what you want to give voice to is going to make a difference. That's, that's, that's very low on my priority list in life in terms of how I want to be spending my time, right? And so participatory budgeting, how it differs, um, one, it's not kind of a one-time thing. Um, it's an annual cycle of meeting and voting and deliberation. There are lots of different ways that community can get engaged from, you know, those deeper, longer meetings to maybe just showing up to one uh, a short um it doesn't even have to be a meeting. We've done some really great street outreach where you can just kind of, you weren't even planning to show up to a, um, a, <laughs> a, a space where you were gonna get a say in how to spend your public money. You were just at the farmer's market and lo and behold, five minutes later, you've gotten to submit a project idea. So from start to finish, um, the, the basics of how participatory budgeting works. Um, first, there's the design of the participatory budgeting process. So. Um, at this point, some you know, elected or appointed official who has authority um, over a portion of public money has said, yes, I, I, um, I agree that I'm going to allow this process of participatory budgeting led by the community to be the arbiter of how this money is spent. Um, and so it starts out with a, a community uh, steering committee. Um, which kind of creates the rules for how community is going to work in partnership with government um, to be able to determine, you know, who get engages in this process. Is it going to be just people who live here? Is it people who live and work here? What age do you have to be to be able to engage? One thing I really like about participatory budgeting is that often um, the, the age um, to get engaged in this process is lower than your standard voting age of 18. So we often see teens involved. We've even seen elementary age kids involved in this process. And you'd be really surprised by how smart and insightful the, um, the, the, the engagement of these young people is, even at a very young age. So this community advisory group uh, sets the parameters for um, for how participatory budgeting is gonna work in the community, who is included in this, what the goals of the process are, what you're trying to achieve more broadly. And then 
there is a stage for brainstorming ideas um, that can happen through, you know, they said in-person meetings. It can happen through online tools. Um, you know, increasingly we have better online deliberation tools. Um, and it can also occur through, you know, kind of informal settings. So again, instead of expecting people to come to you um, to come to a formal meeting, um, you can go to, um, you know, a transit stop, to a farmer's market. You can go out into classrooms um, and solicit these ideas um, alongside the parameters that have been set by this community advisory committee alongside government. Um, once that brainstorming uh, stage has been set, then there is a process of developing these proposals. Um, usually you'll get a subset of uh, community volunteers, uh, sometimes we call them budget delegates, we've also seen them um, called change agents, you can call them whatever you want, but they are um, a set of volunteers who have uh, agreed to take that broad collection of ideas and then work alongside uh, the public agency staff to determine what is feasible and how much would this cost. Um, and they have the opportunity to really get behind the scenes, understand what drives the costs behind, um, you know, oftentimes you know, very, it, it costs a lot <laughs> to, to um, provide public services, to build infrastructure. So they get that kind of behind the scenes look. And they also get the opportunity to engage in um, a process of prioritization. They get um, more information on what the community needs are so that instead of it being driven by just their self-interest and their self-experience, they get, um, they're able to make those decisions as a group informed by the information and opinions that other uh, volunteers, other budget delegates bring to the table as well as, you know, data that the city is able to provide. Um, I, I'm consistently amazed by how excited community members are to get like GIS maps that, <laughs> that give you demographic information, that map out existing facilities. And so again, it's, it's a way for people to get really informed and to set some really clear priorities. Um, once you've made it through that proposal development phase, that's when there is a binding public vote. Um, and so, you know, maybe at the beginning of the process, you started out with hundreds of ideas, those get whittled down to maybe 15 or 20. Um, and then, uh, again, depending on what the rules are that the steering committee has set at the beginning, um, people get to um, decide on how to spend this portion of the, um, of the budget. Um, and so maybe it's a million dollars, maybe it's 1% of the entire city budget. Um, and so, and just like with idea collection, either you can have kind of set polling sites um, where maybe you might have a kind of a, a more formal educational experience uh, for people to learn about all the proposals. Or on the other end, you can, again, just you can go to places where people already are. Um, people might not be expecting to engage in a civic exercise, but they're there, they're there waiting for the bus or, or whatever they're doing, and they're able to very quickly engage in a meaningful exercise in democracy. Um, after that vote occurs, it's all tallied up, and then the projects that get the most votes win. And that, that's, that is how participatory budgeting works. Wow, so, I mean, it seems pretty similar to other types of engagement or planning processes we do. Obviously, it has some of those more equity focus and that whole democratic approach. But it, I mean, I like that it, I mean, it's not scary sounding like, oh my gosh, I have to learn this whole new technique. Mm -hmm. It seems like something that would be pretty easy for local governments to pick up. Yeah, I, th I think that um, what's nice about it is, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't require 
that the public kind of have to pick up really complicated jargon. And it doesn't necessarily involve uh, people who are, are working in government to have to pick up new skills. At the end of the day, you know, I was naming a lot of techniques that I hope that people who are working in government are already implementing of, you know, having more interactive meetings, meeting people where they're at. Uh, we really push making sure that there's, you know, food and childcare, you know, these are things that we're all already doing. But um, it's kind of putting that all together within the space and cycle of participatory budgeting and having that, that final vote be authoritative and not just advisory. That's really um, what is revolutionary about participatory budgeting. Um, the other thing I'll, I'll note is that um, like one way to think about participation is, is kind of thinking about um, this terminology of thick participation versus thin participation. This thick participation being um, you know, the, the proposal development phase is where people might commit a lot of hours really over the course of a few weeks to dive really deep and understand the issues. Um, and then like thin participation, which might be kind of a shorter engagement. Um, and a lot of times as, as, um, as planners and as people in uh, the public sector, we tend to kind of pick one or the other for our engagement, right? And so when you pick the thick engagement, you get a very small group of people who dive deep. Um, I, my sense is that planners often tend to choose more the thin engagement methods where you're trying to get as many people as possible. What's nice about participatory budgeting, because it's a cycle and because it's this kind of multifaceted approach, you get the best of both instead of having to make the trade-offs of one or the other. That's great. And so, you know, when you said that, this that whole deep dive versus kind of that broader reach, um, it really makes me think about some of the challenges with equity in our public engagement. And, you know, I know a lot of times with our planning processes, we kind of try to go broad with the folks that are easy to get. You know, I'm always telling my clients, okay, you have a whole group of people that you just text them and they'll be wherever you ask them to be, right? I mean, they're just, they want to be engaged, they're active. It's these other groups that maybe lack trust in the, in the government or really aren't um, having as many opportunities to access these in events or ways to engage. And so can you talk a little bit about kind of how you address that equity challenge through participatory budgeting? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so on the tactic side again, we really um, we really push um, in the design of the participatory budgeting process for there to um, one at the very start be some very clear goals about who you're trying to reach because without that intentionality um, that you know you're trying to reach a particular population that maybe doesn't usually engage in your community um, without that as a as a stated goal, then you're going to fail from the outset. So again, I. It's going to vary from community to community, but maybe there's a particular demographic, um, you know, ethnic group or, you know, folks who are not um, uh, English uh, language speakers as their first language. Maybe that's your goal. Maybe it's that you want more youth to participate. Maybe it's that you just want folks from a certain part of town to be, to be participating more. Whatever that goal is, you have to state it at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, and then the design of the process follows from that. It follows in, you know, where you cite the meetings. A lot of times, you know, in order to quote, reach everyone, you might be like, okay, well, I can have three meetings. I'm going to have all of them downtown. But, you know, that's kind of the most centrally accessible place in theory, but does that really meet your goal of trying to, um, trying to reach out to a particular segment of the population that often doesn't show up? Mm 
Um, just that's just one example. Mm -hmm. um, again, I mentioned, you know, making sure that you're thinking about, uh, you know, food, childcare, translation, those things that make meetings more accessible. Those are, you know, best practices that aren't particular to participatory budgeting. What is particular to participatory budgeting, um, and I think is really important to to um, to consider at the very outset is that again you know that your voice is guaranteed to matter it's not mm -hmm. advisory it's a binding vote at the end and what gets people to turn out is that um, aside from the fact that you know that your voice is going to matter it's that there are very clear consequences to um, to participation and a lot of times in planning processes it's like okay well let's lay out um, you know, a long-range planning process. And that can be really difficult for your average person to understand what does that mean, what are the stakes. But that when you make the stakes very clear that it's, you know, we want to spend this amount of, the, of um, our public budget, it will result in building actual things that will be in your community. Just the fact that the stakes are clearer and more tangible is so important for advancing equity. Because again, all of us have limited time, but especially for, for people who are, you know, kind of struggling from paycheck to paycheck, mm -hmm. uh, for people who um, uh, don't have a high level of trust in government. Knowing upfront that the stakes matter is automatically going to drive more equitable participation because um, just more people will understand what it is that's before them and what it is that's being decided. That's great. So, yeah, I guess I'm wondering, particularly for our audience, you know, what what is a typical budget for something like this? Is it is it more project specific? Do we start slow and, and work out big or just go right for it with the whole citywide budget? Sure. Um, so um, participatory budgeting is typically applied to a portion of a budget. And it can be a city budget, it can be a district budget, it can be a state budget. We've even seen, um, we've seen our first national participatory budgeting process out of Portugal. Oh, cool. So it can, it can be on any scale. Um, it could be on a department scale. Um, it can be on the scale of a school. So it can be applied to a lot of different spaces. Uh, again, what's important is that the money is enough that the stakes matter, mm -hmm. um, right? So we often will recommend for say a citywide process that you'll wanna have at least um, a million dollars per 100,000 people. That's one benchmark that we often give for, um, and it doesn't matter where those funds come, they might come from just the Department of Education or it might be part of the citywide budget. Um, we'll often recommend also doing kind of percentage of the budget, at least 1% or 2% of the entire budget. Um, that adds up very quickly in a lot of places. Um, so we find that when, um, when governments start too small, that it doesn't inspire the participation that you would like because the stakes just aren't high enough. Mm. Um, and then the other challenge when you start too small is that, you know, good participation takes time and resources. You know, you need staff who are going to uh, do the work of organizing meetings, of doing community uh, communications of this back and forth with the community volunteers of, of vetting the projects and that if you start too small that the effort that goes into it isn't worth it mm. um, which so it's which is not to say that there is um, I'm hesitant to give a you know this is too small threshold but just really think about what is what is meaningful and what's the cost benefit and so we really encourage uh, governments to to make sure that the stakes are going to be inspiring and that 
it makes sense from a cost-benefit standpoint to put in the, um, the very real but very important work that we see pays off, um, but that, that it's worth it to do that um, for this. Mm. So that's really interesting because, you know, you think about, I can see a lot of communities wanting to just like dip their toes in, right, and say, okay, well, let's, we're going to renovate that park, you know, let's focus on, you know, what equipment they want and, and have it be something really small, not maybe part of the entire renovation, but just little components of it. And it sounds like, I mean, it's not like you're saying that doesn't work, but it, it may not be as effective as something that's a little bit bigger. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say a couple of things. One, um, you know, one of the key costs in participatory budgeting is that, again, good outreach, just like doing that that person-to-person -person work and, and having good communications, that's often one of the driving costs um, behind the implementation of participatory budgeting. If you do happen to have um, a more captive audience, and we see this in particular in schools, where it's like you don't have to do like a big outreach blitz, like you've already got these kids coming to school every day. Day, right and so that that drastically lowers the implementation costs if you've already got um, you know a, a some segment of community stakeholders that gathers on a regular basis in that case then you can uh, you know meaningfully do this with a smaller um, portion of money um, I'll also say though in, in the example that you just gave of you know let's just talk about the renovation of this one park I mean it's important to have those opportunities for input but that um, what we see, you know, generally in participation is that when you limit the scope that much of the engagement, that is when people kind of tune out and don't, you know, unless, unless you live right there, um, you, you're going to have a very limited audience for who engages in that, whether it's through participatory mm. budgeting or through, you know, a one-time public hearing. Um, where, where I've seen a lot of the frustrations um, of community and engaging is that, you know, they'll show up at this, you know, hearing for the park and they'll say, you know, we actually don't need a park renovation right now. What we actually need is, you know, we want to have community workers there to staff the park or, mm -hmm. you know, we would rather, um, you know, improve the street infrastructure around it so that it's safe to walk to the park or bike to the park. People bring up really good, really important, um, really valid ideas about what might be a better way to use these funds, but then they get shut down. They get told mm -hmm. by the planners like, oh no, that's out of scope. That's not what we're here for. We don't have authority for that. And that's where trust breaks down, right? And so what's great about participatory budgeting is that you, you create a broader framework so that you can have a more holistic conversation about what is it that's actually going to improve this community. Um, and you allow kind of a more bottom-up conversation. And that's how you get more buy-in um, into the, the projects that, that government is trying to, to fund and implement. And it sounds like, too, based on that example, you're also catching it at a much earlier stage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when they're talk, keep sticking with the park example, the city or town, county, whoever has probably already got grant money for that, right? And it's very specific. Right. But they didn't take the time beforehand to have that, hey, what do we need here conversation. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, it can be, it can be hard to have that what, 
what do you need conversation when it feels too blue sky, right? Because mm -hmm. we also see a lot of times, whether it's in the space of maybe a master planning initiative or um, uh, some other uh, kind of medium term planning where, you know, you'll ask the public, what do you want? Um, but that can also be a really unfulfilling conversation because, again, it's like, well, you know, I can come and tell you what I want, but is there any promise that any of these things are going to happen? Because, again, there are no resources behind it. So participatory budgeting creates um, some parameters, some limitations, so that it's, you know, not a total kind of, uh, um, you know, blank you're slate. not just, right, yeah, not a blank slate. You're not just expressing a wish. You know that something is going to come out of it. Even if it's not the thing that you want, but you know that something is going to get built. Somebody is going to come out happy in this process. That's very interesting. So, yeah, I guess I'd be curious to hear from your perspective, what are some of the local governments that you feel are really doing a great job with this? Mm -hmm. Who's leading the way? Yeah, um, I mean, it, it works differently in different places, obviously. Um, we really like to, to point to the example of uh, Boston, where they've, they had the first um, youth uh, centered participatory budgeting process um, called Youth Lead the Change. Um, and so um, there they have a million dollars of uh, capital funds that are spent each year. You can only participate if you're between the ages of 12 and 25. Um, and so, uh, you know, you get carded if you seem like maybe you're a little <laughs> older than, than uh, you should be to participate in this process. Um, but again, like I, I think that oftentimes we, um, we underestimate the wisdom of youth right? Mm -hmm. But what we've seen is that the projects that, that youth have um, put forward and um, ended up uh, voting and voting for and winning, they are still projects that have broader community benefit. So it's not like they're just voting for things that only 12 to 25 year olds would use. One of my favorite examples out of that process is that um, uh, one, one year a winning project was an expansion of their bike share system so nice. that there were more stations in lower income communities. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, um, maybe have a disproportionate benefit on youth because again, they don't, you know, if they don't have driver's licenses yet, um, you know, that's an, an added mobility element for them, but they're not the only ones who benefit from this. That's right. Um, yeah. And we've, um, uh, I think that, um, you know, another example that I can point to is right nearby there is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where um, they've really committed to growing the process over time. So they started um, with uh, a certain amount of funds, and then each year they've made the budget a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, a little bit bigger, so that instead of the process being static, you're able to increase the stakes. And again, by increasing the stakes, you're able to um, make the participation more meaningful and more diverse over time. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I love the youth examples because it, it's right. I mean, it's not like your, your example with expanding the bike share versus, oh, we want a skate park mm -hmm. or something like that. You would think, okay, that's only something they're interested in, but they, they do have that broader perspective. And um, it, we have been finding it very exciting and fun in our projects to, to engage with the youth. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, okay. So these examples in this overview I mean to me it's just like so exciting and awesome really <laughs> why isn't every city on, on the planet doing this 
That's a great question. I mean, I, I think a lot of it is just that it, good ideas uh, take time to spread. So we're doing our best as a, as a scrappy little nonprofit to spread the word. Um, and we're seeing that, you know, of, of those cities that are doing it, they're getting a lot of calls from other places when they see it in the news. Um, I know in particular, the largest processes um, in the country and um, uh, in New York, as well as in Chicago, where they where they do it on a, a ward or district basis, um, those elected officials get calls all the time um, from uh, elected officials in other cities uh, to see to to find out more, and and so it's it's spreading very organically. Um, I think that. Um, one of the obstacles is that sometimes people think that you need extra or new money in order to do mm -hmm. this, or they see it as sort of an add-on, like a nice-to-have. Um, and so one of the messages that we're really trying to push again is that this is something that you can integrate into your existing budgeting processes. You already have to have public hearings for the budget. I sit on the, the city planning board uh, in uh, where I live right now in Stamford, Connecticut. We have a whole budgeting cycle that already happens. Um, so you don't have to to start from scratch. Um, you can decide that just a portion of that budget is going to be allocated in this way. Um, it's not about finding extra money or, or kind of doing this in a year when it seems like the decisions aren't as hard. If anything, I'd really encourage that when, when you're in those spaces of austerity, when you're facing really difficult decisions, that's when you need this more. Mm -hmm. um, so we've seen in uh, the example of Vallejo, California, they started doing participatory budgeting after the city went bankrupt. Um, wow. And so they, as part of a return to uh, fiscal solvency, they uh, passed a sales tax, um, which, you know, sales taxes are never popular, but they decided that was what needed to be done. But in order to make that sales tax um, more palatable to the public, they set aside a portion of it to be decided through participatory budgeting. Oh, interesting. And so it's been a vehicle for rebuilding trust as well as building buy-in for something that might have otherwise been very unpopular. That's a really great example. You love to hear that kind of stuff. So it sounds like too that this is something that I mean, planners are going to be accustomed to um, engagement with the public anyways. I mean, it's, are you seeing a lot of um, cities or towns, counties hiring consultants to help with this? Or is it typically they're just trying to do it through their own resources? Um, and we've seen a variation. Um, again, since it is still a newer practice, um, we haven't seen a lot of other consultants in this space. You know, we as the Participatory Budgeting Project, we function both as a, a nonprofit consultancy where we provide technical assistance to communities that would like to implement oh, okay. budgeting, as well as um, we, we've got kind of an R&D arm where we're trying to figure out how do we make this even better. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so that includes how do we make the participation practices better? How do we um, improve and increase the impacts of participation, as well as how can we use technology to make this process more accessible and more efficient? Um, and then we also act as a convener to bring together the growing community of, um, of people in the public sector and, and other um, institutions, anchor institutions that are engaging in this process so that they can learn from each other. Um, so we, uh, there's kind of a range of how we engage. Um, we might, you know, step in if, if it's a particularly um, kind of novel or innovative or really large process, um, we may step in deeply into the design of it. 
um, or we can um, kind of provide that best practice advice and, and help the uh, government to figure out like how do we staff this up internally and so we're um, we end up as a a, a resource, um, but we don't run it. And really in order for this practice to scale, that's what's going to take to, to yeah. be able to put out those best practices very widely. Um, and, but then for governments to find a way to embed this into the DNA of how they, how they do public engagement for this to not be seen as just a, a one-time pilot that you're going to try. So, and you mentioned your kind of R and D arm of the organization. So, you know, what's next for participatory budgeting? What are you seeing on the in, on the horizon for the next five years? Mm. So, to lean into that technology element a little bit, um, one thing that I think is really exciting is that we're trying to figure out how can we use, um, you know, current and emerging technologies to make. Um, participation um, more publicly accessible again so that so that you don't have to you know choose between am I gonna have dinner with my two-year-old daughter this evening or am I gonna go and have my say in a, a public hearing we've been testing out some different technologies for that already which is common throughout planning but again a lot of those technologies tend to not be um, designed in a way that are, are, are actually very accessible to your average person they tend to skew toward um, the usual suspects. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to figure out what are the ways in which we can use maybe texting-based technologies that do have more ubiquity um, uh, that, you know, your average person is more likely to have access to that. How can we use technologies like that so that we bridge this technological divide? We're also trying to figure out how can we use these technologies in order to make implementation of civic processes more seamless and less labor intensive for people in the public sector. Because again, one of the main obstacles that we see um, to any good engagement process, including participatory budgeting, is that people are like, well, you know, that sounds nice, but how are we gonna staff this? And if so, we're we're trying to develop some technologies that reduce the administrative burden, make it easier for um, the public and um, people who work in government to be able to communicate very directly, but in a way that doesn't overwhelm either party. So I'm really excited for us to be leading the way in not only making participatory budgeting better, but really being able to inform uh, the practice of civic engagement uh, more broadly for planners. Um, and the other thing that I'm just really excited about for participatory budgeting is the ways in which it is a very flexible tool. Um, and so, you know, most of the participatory budgeting processes that we've seen so far have either been at the city level or at the city, um, you know, maybe at a city council or district or ward level. We've also seen it a lot in the, at the school level. Um, but we're very excited to see increasing interest in doing it on, um, say, the county level. We just had our first countywide process in Merced County, California. Um, we're really excited to see it um, move to the state level. We've been um, uh, talking to, to folks who are, um, you know, maybe governor candidates or um, people who work in various statewide departments who are very interested in using this mechanism on a broader scale. And so I'm just really excited to see more and more um, governments be able to adapt this as a tool to their context. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And I love these examples from the schools because how amazing would it be for our children to grow up not knowing anything else yeah. when it comes to budgeting and knowing that they've always had a voice with it. Um, you know, I have a seven-year-old, so I can imagine uh, for her, she would definitely enjoy having that right. sense of ownership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, um, one of our, um, 
kind of favorite recent processes have actually been um, a process that happened at the elementary school of our executive director. So he has a son who has just turned six. Um, and, um, and again, you're really surprised by how even at that very young age, they come up with insights that you would never think of. The one that comes to mind is um, that one of the kids uh, said, you know, we want uh, to spend money on moving down the um, paper towel dispensers. We don't wash our hands because we can't reach the paper towels. <laughs> this really basic thing was that if you if you don't ask, they're not going to tell you. And yeah. you know, I mean that you know, kids washing their hands that's a public health issue, right? Pretty much. And so um, you know, they they come up with really smart things that just when you're an adult, you, you wouldn't. Uh, think of. Um, and one of the biggest um, announcements that we've had just in the last couple of weeks is that um, in New York City, um, Mayor de Blasio um, has made a commitment to expanding this idea of action civics. Um, this idea that, you know, in the schools, so it's not just that you're supposed to learn about the history of American government, but you should really be learning the skills to engage in government today. And as part of that has made a commitment to see participatory budgeting roll out in every single New York City high school. Wow. So um, I'm, I'm excited for how transformative that could be. So that again, um, our youth don't see their participation in government as optional or a luxury, but that it is something that um, is expected and something that they're trained to be able to do well. That's fantastic. Well, and really, I mean, congratulations to you and the Participatory Budgeting Project. You guys are doing amazing work. I would encourage all of our listeners to uh, check out your resources. You've got some fantastic ones, some that are free uh, for anybody to download and, and check out. And if, if you want to get started with Participatory Budgeting, they're the, they're the go-to group. So Congratulations on that, Jennifer, and thanks again for taking the time to chat with us. This has been so interesting, and I'm looking forward to uh, continuing chatting with your organization and hopefully getting some of our clients uh, more engaged with your work. Great, yeah, and thanks for the opportunity to, to speak more about this, uh, I think, really revolutionary practice. I agree. Thanks again. Thank you for joining this episode of SAS Talk with Kim. You can listen to other podcasts in our sustainability action series at sastalkwithkim.com. Remember that action is the key to your community's sustainable future. What will you act on today?